You're listening to 17 Karat K-Pop. For more about this show and my other show, Enthusiasts, plus to get the latest interviews, K-pop news, album reviews, and so much more, subscribe to the show's free newsletter at 17karatkpop.substack.com. Enjoy the show! Hi, everybody! Welcome back to 17 Karat K-pop. I'm so excited today to talk to you about all things N-Dark Blood, and it will start with a webtoon recap. So if you're not caught up to episode 50 of Dark Moon, The Blood Altar, skip to the middle of this episode, where I then dive into tie-ins between the webtoon and N-Hyphen's music videos, plus dissect all the key references in N-Hyphen's new song lyrics, music videos, and more. So much to say, so many new theories to share, so let's just get right into it. And remember, I will have more detail also on 17karatkpop.substack.com. Sign up for the free newsletter now so you don't miss it. Sonically, of course, it's wonderful. It's a very cool, cohesive, tailored-to-them sound. They really do have a one-of-a-kind style. You could just tell it's an N-hyphen song whenever they sing it. It's very, but also very specific. And I love, love, love the teasers they always have. The intros, they really suck you in. Really good scene setters. They know how to tell a story that's just so compelling start to finish. So overall, a great body of work. It's hard to judge the songs one by one because it is so cohesive. I will say, though, right call to make the title track bite me. Even just the instrumental alone really goes off. And I nominate for the next single, Karma. Shout out to Andy Love. Full disclosure, I interviewed him. He worked on Karma. So check out the episode called K-Pop Talk with Andy Love for that. Anyway, what amazes me is how this comeback is very multimedia and huge, just big picture for their story. It really is not just what it seems on the surface. You really got to get into N-Hyphen's whole story to, I think, accurately fully assess it. Because this is not just some attractive vampire werewolf story. It's not some romance love story with a webtoon edition. It is so much more than that. It is not about the romance really at all. My thesis, which I'll write more about on 17karatkpop.substack.com, this is really a story about N-Hyphen learning to reap what they sowed, realizing these greater truths about what it means to be human and how, in the end, we are all equal humans. A lot of interesting allegories in this story and the webtoon. The natural evolution getting tighter and tighter, the connections clearer and clearer between N-Hyphen and their webtoon story, the Dark Moon, the Blood Altar. That natural fusion is really cool to see because they do really have a lot of overlap thematically. N-Hyphen's music video story really is just another way to visualize the same themes, the same morals of the story you can learn about in the webtoon. The main setting, Riverfield. This town with rival schools. One is where werewolves go to school, the Sunshine City School. And then there is Desolus Academy, where the N-hyphen characters go to school. They're vampires, but they are hiding, pretending to be humans. And they can blend in because they're not like other vampires. There are two main types. They're the really evil, vicious ones, but they're also vampires who have more humanity to them. They do not kill humans. They don't slay anybody, and in their case, they don't even drink blood. They resist that urge all year, and they end up just drinking it as part of their annual birthday celebration. And they celebrate their birthday on the day of their escape from an orphanage they were imprisoned in, basically. 
So they do not know who bit them or how they became vampires. Just as long as they can remember, one woman trapped them in this house and raised them in there. Then they made an escape over a century later and have been wandering ever since. So they don't know their origin story and they carry that confusion and pain with them, which really adds to their more human side. So they don't know when their birthday is, which is why they all celebrate together on their escape day every year. Suha is a transfer student going to the N-Hyphen Character School, this Desolus Academy, and part of the reason she was drawn there is because of a strong fear and hatred of vampires, and that school has a strict no-vampires policy. Plus, that also means she will not be accused of being one, because she's also been harboring a lot of just heavy emotions, because Suha has spent her life as an outsider, a loner, and accused of being just different. She didn't know how, she's not a vampire, but everyone always accused her of being one. And so just like them, she knows the hurt of people jumping to the conclusion, you look like the shady character who did this crime. She was even accused of being responsible for her best friend, her only childhood friend, Chris's death, and a vampire killed him. So not only is she grieving her schoolmate's death, but she also has to grieve the accusation she did it. So everyone's always been out to get her judging her, not sure what's up with her. So that sense of who am I and why am I like this and why can't people just be nice to me, that is shared with them. So that's part of the reason they feel this psychic connection with her. They feel drawn to her, even though they know they have to stay away because she can't find out their secret or she might tell the school and they'll get kicked out and have to go back to wandering. They find out her backstory, why she hates vampires. They really are like, ugh, we really gotta be careful. She never finds out about us. One of them, Solon, hides from the others that he is part werewolf. He's a mutt. And they have a lot of werewolf bashing sessions, so he worries about ever telling them he has some werewolf blood in him. So they're hiding from Suha. Solon is hiding part of himself from the boys. Then there's Khan, who hides the fact he's a werewolf from Suha at first. He goes to the rival school, falls in love with her, because a werewolf always falls in love with someone the night of a lunar eclipse. Like, during the lunar eclipse, the first person they lay eyes on, they fall in love with hopelessly forever. So he's forever in love with Suha. A student gets murdered at the werewolf school. So the Sunshine City School, those kids immediately accuse the vampires, the secret vampires from the other school, of being the culprits. So they very directly learn to feel Suha's pain about being accused. But they insist we're not like those vampires, we're different. But all vampires are the same to them, just like all werewolves are terrible and the same awful monsters to the vampires. Episode 1, the backstory of Suha and Chris hanging out just playing around as childhood friends. And Chris admits to her, it's okay that you're an outsider, I am too, let's be friends. And he shows off his limp, reveals he has a limp. Quote, if you think you're not like the others, you become afraid of facing them. Lots of people gossip about those who are different, unquote. And Sua starts to believe in fate. Maybe she's okay with having been ostracized because, quote, I thought that there was only misfortune, but now I know all those were stepping stones to meet you, to learn to value you as a friend, to never lose a precious friend like you. Then she joins the academy in the present day, and Heli walks in as she's setting up her room, finds out she's got some superhuman strength lifting up a bed over her head. She's immediately terrified, like, oh my gosh, he's gonna think I'm a vampire with superhuman powers. 
Episode two, they bond, chatting over books, and she really is just enjoying the fact she's having small talk with someone who's not judging her right away, looking at her warily. He knows how it feels to be judged, and so he's not judging her. He believes her when she says it's not what it looks like, and that is refreshing for her. Then he meets up with the other guys, and some of them are very cautious, like, hey, remember not to get too close to other people, because they could spill our secret. Flashback to Suha, remembering being taunted in her past. So she's really flinching, bracing for impact, when Heli introduces her to his friends, and she's so pleasantly surprised that they are so nice to her, and even give her a tour. But Solon is the one holding that secret, who is the coldest shoulder, and he's mostly with the group when they're with her, not to woo her like the others to be friendly, but just to keep an eye on them, because he doesn't trust them to not blab something they shouldn't. He's like their strict parent. He gets pretty confrontational, one-on-one -on -one with her, saying, quote, We don't hang out with other people, especially you, unquote. Heli offers to walk her to class when he telepathically communicates with her for the first time, reveals that his secret power is telepathy, so much for not disclosing too much too fast. Solon is seething because the others show off their powers too. He also rages because they gave her his seat in class. He's just had it with these kids of his. While taking out the trash by herself, Suha runs into the Sunshine City crew who are there on their canvas to question and seek revenge, presumably, on the vampires they believe killed their peer. Heli shows up, being protective, and says, let's not fight, we're scaring her, let's just settle this in a better way at the Nightball Tournament. That's their big sporting event. He says, we know we look suspicious, but please trust us when I say we are not like that. Jaka and Noah, two of the N-hyphen character vampires, discover that Suha has these energy waves, these powers, beyond anything they've sensed before with their super sensitivity superpower. Like, they can just sense waves generating off of anyone, and hers are just next level. Something is very different about her. They plan to meet up with Suha, and Sheehan, being such a funny, likable character, tells the other members to be there at 7, then tells Suha to be there at 5. So he's there alone with her, and he does exactly what Solon told him not to. His worst-case scenario, he leaves her alone. He hangs out with her, but then he says, Wait right there, I'll go back with tickets for a boat ride. Unsupervised, the vampires show up, the bad kind, and pull her into an alley. Jaka shows up, uses super speed, carries her to safety, also teleports. Then Gino uses flame powers to choke out the vampire. Then Suha suddenly, in the distance, sees what looks like a grown-up version of Chris. In episode 12, though, the image is gone, and she's still reflecting on her history of very vivid dreams. She finds out about the lunar eclipse and what it does to wolves. Episode 14 continues that conversation with more werewolf bashing. Heli offers her to bite his neck to prove how much she trusts him, how much he trusts her, which she doesn't because she says it's weird, but she did say she did it when it felt different as little kids with Chris. It was their sign of loyalty. So they've really established a trust with each other when they both had the reasons before to stay walled off and guarded. Suha goes to their party, their big birthday party, in that big mansion that they apparently inherited from a sponsor who left it to the boys in a will. That's a plot point that has not really ever been tied up as of recording time, so not sure who gave them that mansion, but I digress. 
And when she leaves, she goes back to get this gift she got and walks in on the mid-feast, like gorging on blood. She runs away crying and then gets attacked by a horde of vampires, the bad kind, right after she saw that sight that terrified her. He says, yes, it is I. Chris, I'm all grown up. I came back to life and I've been searching for you all this time. And so they embrace, have this emotional reunion. This is a point in the story where people think it's like going to be a love triangle situation. No, it is not a surface level plot like that. You will see. Physical fighting breaks out. Heli takes her to safety, where he apologizes for the lie. He says, you could hate me forever, but just come with me now to safety at least. Then you can go back to ignoring me. But they have this long talk, and she kind of really realizes for the first time, my assumptions about all vampires were inaccurate. They're not all like that. They're not bloodthirsty monsters with no self-control. There are different kinds that do not match the fear, the fear-inducing stereotype in my head. So she says, look, no matter what you are, I do still want to be friends. And he fulfills her wish and her proof she's ready to prove her loyalty to him now by biting her neck. But in episode 28, we find out he did it so gingerly that it barely broke the skin. Like, no blood. She's still a human, a different kind of superpower human, but she's not a vampire after that nibble. Then she also does find out about the rival school students, including Khan, being werewolves. Episode 26 and 27 follow the boys' reunion with their former headmistress, the principal of what they call a prison, the orphanage. They haven't seen her in 120 years. And she tells them the whole truth, why she did it, and she claims she really just did it to protect them. They're very skeptical of her. If you can't trust someone for a century, regaining that trust will take a bit of time. But her explanation for how they became who they are checks out with their experiences. Things make sense now. We'll talk more about what she revealed to them later on. She does warn them, though, to watch out for Darden. Turns out the guy who is so awful, he actually disguised himself to look like a grown-up Chris to win Suha's trust. That's the evil villain. Darden, and he's on a quest for absolute power, so he's seeking to find these boys who have the power in them. More on that later. The next few episodes have just a ton of action scenes during the big nightball tournament, which by one point in the end, Sunshine City wins, because the vampires are distracted, wondering where Suha went. She was just in the stands, but during the game she went to go see Marge, who just crept up to her in a hood and said, come meet me outside at halftime. And she was like, that was weird. A strange woman said, come meet me alone at halftime. And she does. A little late, she hesitated, but still, Suha, what are you doing? Jaka cannot sense her waves like he normally could. So we know something's wrong. They suspect that Marge took her during the game, knowing they would resist and try to defend her, so she did it on the sly. So they suspect she went back to the place they grew up, Vanfield House, where they return. Meanwhile, Darden does have Suha. Now she's unconscious with him. Darden, to get absolute power, needs to drain it from Suha and mix it with two other sources. Varger blood from this wolf god, Ancestor, and... A special token of this one character. It's a token, a necklace worn by Khan. Heli chokes at one of these vampires, and the vampire admits, We were just following orders. We don't really know much, just that we were told to get a book, a magic book, delivered to the blood altar. And on the way there, we have to go to Railgun, the name of a bar. 
Then the vampire seems to have died from the chokehold. It's important to note that in this story, whenever a vampire dies, so too does everyone who is bitten by them. If their leader dies, the one who converted them, they die too. Meanwhile, Darden now has kidnapped Marge, who is locked up, and Suha is captive too, and unconscious. And throughout their journey to rescue her, she has a lot of vivid flashbacks and memory recall moments. She has a lot of vivid daydreams. And it turns out it's more like she time travels. Her body doesn't, but her soul kind of zaps in and out. So her magic sort of invisibly can help guide and help the others win fights and stuff. So she helps them throughout their journey. She does actually help them throughout their many fights. Khan's group of friends finds out about this fog, this black fog that is super powerful and can not only knock you out, but it can suck you of your power. Then Heli has his own vivid vision or dream where Suha tells him, go get the sword. They enter the bar, go to the basement, and get locked in a storage room when the door closes behind them. The dark fog that fills it is suffocating them, draining them of power. And once they get out, surprise, another obstacle, another horde of vampires to fend off. There's a fascinating quote to read into in episode 37 when Darden says to Suha, who's unconscious, but he talks to her a lot. Very movie villain of him. He talks out loud through all of his plans. Anyway, he says, quote, Back then you had power and I had love. In this life, I hope I have power and you have love. Unquote. Think about that. He really sees it as mutually exclusive. He can have power or love, and because he can't have her love, even though he tried everything, even looking like her late friend, he'll just take power, and he views those as opposites. It's very revealing. Although, they seem to get a second wind with the magical powers being unintentionally transmitted by Suha, the black fog working against them is gaining strength too. But they end up killing the lead vampires, so the whole horde of them falls to. Except one who they choke out, and that one says, while held by the throat, the info they want to know about where to go. So next up, the city of Autumnal, which is a city they find out pretty quickly, is full of vampires. Separately, the werewolf crew with Khan are also headed there, but they're more focused on finding their brethren who have been missing forever, and they suspect are locked up where wolves are kept caged, and they do free a ton of wolves when they get there. It turns out Railgun, that bar, is an in-between, like a go-to place between. The go-between to get your supplies ready to transport is Railgun, and the storage unit right by it, which is caging those werewolves being used to take their power, like test subjects in a lab. Khan learns his backstory next, in that the necklace he wears has special meaning, the sign of lycanthropes, which will make him a target. Sunha's latest vivid dream is about her as a princess, and she's very upset about this arranged marriage. It's quite revealing the double meaning when Princess Suha in this story, she does what Chancellor Darden told her to by rejecting the marriage proposal. Then he gets cocky. Prince Heli swoops in to threaten him and say, basically, there are some things in life one can never earn. This Chancellor can never earn the love of a princess. Then he is in the library, fiendishly poring over magic spells and stuff, trying to find a way to get that formula for absolute power. Quote, I climb my way up to become chancellor of this country, despite being born into a ruined family, and yet I still can't have you. Unquote. 
Marge Burson tells him he's looking in forbidden shelves. And he says they're just labeled that to hoard the power, hide it from lowly men like him. And he'll show them. We then learn more of the backstory to Suha, who in this flashback vision dream situation is the princess, Princess Celine. Princess Celine was at her mom's deathbed when her mom told her, here's what I did, here's the fate of the kingdom that you will take over. I sealed powers in the blood altar. So many different powers. That's why you're different. Not because you're a vampire. Not because you're a wolf. You have a bit of both and then some. Lots of powers, enough to rule the kingdom. So please use those powers. My dying wish, use those powers to stop Darden. Make sure the kingdom stays out of his grasp. If you carry out a coronation ceremony at the blood altar, then... But before she can finish saying what to do, vampires and Darden burst into the room. He says, quote, All I wanted was your love, but you wouldn't even look at me, unquote. Blood and bodies are everywhere, and Marge grabs her and is like, Leave me here, go finish your coronation ceremony. But Marge is gravely wounded, and Princess Celine says, quote, I can't sacrifice everyone just to make myself queen, unquote. So she agrees to a different tactic. She's unable to just go get absolute power by doing that ceremony now because she couldn't live with that conscience. Everyone around her is injured, bloodied, beaten. She has to save them, fight back. So instead she decides to share her powers, preserving them in knights who are sent to a distant future to be reincarnated. That became those seven vampires that feel like they're fatefully bound to her. Yep, it's the vampires from Desolus Academy. The power in the blood altar is getting unsealed more and more as she's been reincarnated. The princess has been reincarnated into Suha, and so that has led to the cracks in the encasing of the blood altar's power. And as that happens, the unsealing also makes it easier for enemies like Darden to come in and find her and take back the power. The stereotypes associated with menacing vampires make a reappearance when they go to City Hall, and the guys meet the mayor. Turns out Trisha is the main one in charge, but the front-facing PR is the mayor. So the mayor is just a human in this vampire town. Behind the scenes, though, running the show is really Trisha, but she said she needed a more PR-friendly face for the city. Interesting commentary there. There's also an interesting way you could read into when she says, quote, What makes a sword deadly is where you point it. I get to decide. It's your time to kill your friends with the same sword that killed my people, unquote. She does use her powers to make Heli lose control. The moment he grabs the sword, not only does he have a rush of memories, his whole backstory comes back to him. He understands now. But also... Touching the sword leads to her being able to physically control him. So she makes him hurt his friends. That is really quite the statement it makes. Symbolically, that the wounds hurt more when your friend is the one doing them. Someone you trusted. Goes back to that theme of this whole story being this endless quest for trust and companionship and affection. Being treated as a human. Surprisingly, when Khan and his company show up, they help save the vampires. They help pick them up and carry them to safety during the fight, which they eventually win, so Trisha and her twin sister fall down. After holding the mayor by the throat, yeah, putting people in a chokehold is a very common theme in this webtoon, they get information out of him about where the blood altar is. They also get the keys out of him, which they use to unlock where their brethren, the locked-up, missing-for-years wolves, were being kept. 
Darden drinks the blood of Ulgur, and he has Suha with him. So he's like, why isn't this working? Why do I not have absolute power yet? And Marge yells this from behind bars. Quote, do you really think it's about ancestry? It's about preparedness. The royal family didn't inherit the powers because of their royal blood, but kept their line going because they were ready to inherit. The powers succeeded by the royal family are only an outcome of their decency. It's something you can never get by hurting others or taking advantage of those working for you, unquote. There are many broad themes in this story. One is, of course, the allegory to prejudice and stereotypes, trying to make someone feel inferior or superior, mutts like Khan feeling like they don't have a sense of belonging, a group that welcomes them fully. Suha was an outsider. She misjudged the guys. The guys misjudged the werewolves. The werewolves misjudged the vampires. This story is also about the human desires for trust, loyalty, connection. So equality, loyalty, the desire to have a sense of purpose, a greater purpose, and to know your backstory, your past memories, and absolute power corrupting absolutely. Darden is really drunk on power and views it as coming from raw seizure of that power. But Marge reminds him, no, true power is, it goes to who fate permits it to, for being a good person. Power stayed with Suha because she was a good person who was determined to help her power be protected for the kingdom's sake. Power will not absolutely go with Darden because he's using it for immoral, selfish means. So the nature of true power and where it comes from is another way the story is deeper than you thought. N-Hyphen's story has many connections to the webtoon, more as the story has progressed. So throughout their intros, outros, interludes, monologues, and just song lyrics alike, N-Hyphen have always brought up the sea and ocean analogies about drifting, about feeling like they don't know their past, a desire to break out of thought confines and really step into their own, not just accept fate, but also kind of learning what will inevitably happen. What is their fate? And how can they personalize that but still separate themselves from it in some ways? They sing about wealth and inherited wealth. Who is owed what? Who truly earns this stuff? Has true power? What does that look like? Is there a price tag on true power? They talk about visions, foreshadowing, and the light being a source of deception. They also frequently have cited their desire to stay connected to this person they're meeting in vivid dreams. If I wake from dreamless sleep, may tomorrow begin like a dream. We were desperate in our desire to transform. Why do we desire what we cannot acquire? The sun rises to menace and bless our fleshly selves. A light that blinds and deceives. What vision awaits? Who am I? Papers with unanswered questions, endlessly written, like the waves that ride the rhythm atop the sunset sea. For now I will float away, then it will arrive someplace else. The noonday sun that refuses shade and the midday sea that gives it all away is a welcome and a warning. Ushering the approaching rainstorm and typhoon is the fate of the person who sees it first. We will connect no matter what. A midsummer night's dream. Luxury draped on my body. Do I get blessed or do I get cursed? Secret hiding behind the stage lights. Victory inherited. Cursed like a metal. Liar beyond that light. We dive into this real life. I'm making my own history. Open your eyes now in this fake blessing. That lie that broke my wings. Kill the past. I'm out of your enclosure. 
I declare that I, who is hunted so far, have now become the hunter. An attack on the villain, the story of the last century. Melancholy summer sea, the fate of those who knew first. But if it's a struggle to keep your promise, the trust we had shared, can you be solid? Basically, their story is all about this tantalizing promise of coming out during the daytime and being a normal person. No longer feeling like you have to succumb to the shadows and be villainized. It's all kind of an allegory for feeling othered and desiring to be treated like just a fellow human. A desire to be treated as a full person with a backstory, with true power within you, with an understanding of the meaning of life and material things not equating to that power, that satisfaction. Certainty and clarity in a vision you get to direct is what they seek. They become the hunter, not the hunted. They learn how to harness their powers, redirect their fate a bit, and try to build relationships along the way. So many profound themes in this story. That's why I really wanted to spend so much time on it, because they do amaze me, and it's so much more than just, oh, it's a cool, sexy vampire concept. No, they're getting into deeper themes about the meaning of life and belonging, loyalty, a sense of obligation to others, teaming up with people you at first glance assumed you would stay enemies with. It's just really, really remarkable and layered. So here are some parts of N-Hyphen videos that, with the webtoon context, appear quite different. In Let Me In, the storage room they goof off in? Is that the railgun storage room where the wolves were kept? Plus in that video, they all drink a blue liquid. The same blue color associated with Vulgar, the one whose blood is used in the ceremony. So I think they all drink the god wolf blood. Also sunshine continues to form the cracks that break through, break through the glass, boxing them in, showing them the light, exposing them to the light. Videos like Drunk Dazed have pretty overt connections to the story. The whole house party mansion setting is right out of the webtoon. Princely attire, they're dressed up, living large. The vivid flashbacks, all the blood. My theory is that the Drunk Dazed video is like a hypothetical. Like, what if Sue had that day when she forgot her picture and went back to the house to get it, then barged in on and found out about the vampires? What if instead she just knocked on the door and when they didn't answer, she walked away? That's the alternative future that they set up as a hypothetical in that video. Like, what if she hadn't barged in and found out? What if she'd stayed in the dark about it? Would it come out eventually or maybe not? And then would she have a different fate in store? Would she even really cross paths with those guys at all, much after the initial reaction? What would their bond be like? Just an interesting thing to think about. There's another clear tie-in with Tame Dashed in the Nightball setting and theme. Plus the slow motion, trying to run away from that black fog, was in fever. They sing about unfamiliar warmth on Not For Sale, which now seems more in the context of being a vampire. Like, ooh, I didn't expect to feel this emotion ever. In the Pass the Mic video, not only do they have a brief flashback, but they show off their superpowers and are surrounded by these hooded figures who could be a horde of vampires. Upon reaching the Manifesto era, the teaser content showed jewel-encrusted fangs, kind of a symbol of them growing into either their power, more confidence, or just growing in terms of being able to keep up appearances and think they have power until they realize wealth did not come free. In an hyphen story, they confirmed this is the fourth series. So there was the Border series, Dimension, Manifesto, and now the Blood series. 
each one gradually getting more linked to the webtoon story border was them discovering their backstory or just sort of showing it to you. The Dimension series showed them exposing themselves to alternatives, hypothetical futures, seeing the bigger world out there. The Manifesto eras were about really flexing their powers and deciding to break out of other people's definitions of fate. But that came at some costs, so I think this Blood era will continue to show those costs. That, like they said before, you can take everything from the castle, the magical island, you could take whatever riches you want, but nothing is free. It all comes with costs. Now the bill's coming due, their costs are being incurred for straying from the prophecy. But also that came with hidden benefits. Everything was happening for a reason, basically. They learn more about themselves. This has caused them to form new good relationships. Good stuff has happened, but they are betraying the prophecy. Or just, you know, they're trying to find autonomy, despite the fact fate is written for them, that they need to follow. And navigating that middle ground is hard. Ultimately, the new era, the new Dark Blood album, is about realizing and getting humbled by the ways they did take everything, and now they learn nothing was free. Their fates were not guaranteed in the way they had hoped. Power was not guaranteed by attaining the riches. They learn to just kind of get back to the main goal, stop being distracted by shiny objects, and protect the princess and the powers, in turn protecting a whole kingdom. A refusal to protect her is a refusal to protect the kingdom. That's why I insist it is so much more than just some romance story about saving the girl. It's about saving people and using your power for good, realizing fate sent it to you for a reason. So make the world better with it. Some of the teaser posters I really want to take a minute to recite text from. These direct quotes are just really summative. Intoxicated by my own might, I've strayed from your light. This mystical strength, destined to last beyond time seem, oblivious to the illusions hold, I danced on. It had been my false belief that everything was mine. You fade into the abyss, this cruel sentence I face, oblivion. I became a cursed being who couldn't even die, but merely wander. You erased me. I struggled in the deep, terrifying darkness that was worse than hell. Crystal clear, the meaning of sacrifice now near. Fate's iron grip, where you and I together stand. I will be your shield forevermore, even if it costs all that I knew. They recommit to what they now view as fully, truly important. In fate, they say, quote, absolute power. I ran toward that power. Even if the sun blinds you, I reach the promised place to complete our future, above all to protect you. But as the seasons crumble, the green love became greed and erased itself, erased even your selfishness. They trapped me in ruins like the deep sea, oblivion. Where did that terrible curse come from? Who inflicted this cruel punishment? Now I realized, the fate that I devoted my life to, how could I forget? The sign, it rises like a bright sun that clears the darkness. Fate is in my hands again, feeling the power flowing like blood. I'm calling you desperately. I'll never forget it now. Everything was the power I received from you. I grew up in an eternity that will soon return to you. A love wrapped in blood, erased by arrogance, it's over. I lost everything, became an undead monster. Follow this blood sign at the end of the road to dedicate myself to you. He was blinded by absolute power, the tantalizing promise of riches for himself, and now he's trapped in oblivion, which is worse than hell. And he has to go back to fighting the good fight. That's how I interpret it. 
And him talking about the deep sea and memory erasure, keep a pin in that. We'll get back to that. They end the Bite Me video with, quote, I'm willing to give up my trifling power and eternity to you, as long as I can protect you. I will gladly accept the destiny I chose, unquote. It's so interesting how they keep up the destiny talk and choice autonomy talk. Like, they're not mutually exclusive to follow fate and find your own way to do so. They insist, quote, Lost in the maze, I beg you to save me. I will dedicate my life to you. The darkness spread to fate. The destiny of punishment. My arrogant oblivion and illusion. Swallow the river of Lethe. So dangerous. But here you are, shining light. It's really interesting to read the sacrifice lyrics just with the parentheticals, the background lyrics, because they kind of tell a story on their own. Hate this darkness without you. Save me. Twisted, falling, deeper, kill me. Lethe is the personification of oblivion and the river of forgetfulness. One of the underworld's seven rivers. Five main rivers circle Hades. Remember when I told you before in the Dark Blood trailer the number five was key? Turns out I was right because there are five key rivers around Hades in the underworld in mythology. I talked about some of the mythology and hyphen reference in past episodes of this show, but there are new references we have to talk about, including these rivers. There are two kinds of rivers here, the rivers that punish and the rivers that just direct you to hell. Lethe is not one of those. Two are directives kind of just filtering you to hell. Two punish you. The fifth is Lethe. That one is different, where you drink from it and forget your past lives. So in this mythology story, you, as a dead soul, after you die, your soul would be forced to drink from this river to forget your past life before reincarnation. So that's why they sing about the tragedy of love being erased from their memory. They are those doomed souls. So when they say they swallow the river of Lethe, full of darkness, that's what they did. That's why they're lost in oblivion. The other rivers are the River of Wailing, aka the Cocytus River, which is actually a frozen-over lake that Satan froze over. That is for people who broke bonds, special trust with others. A special bond you had with someone, you get sent to the River of Wailing. It's also where people are wandering the banks if they couldn't afford to pay the fee for the ferry that would take you to hell. Styx is one of the rivers that keeps a line between the living and the dead. It's also where the Greek gods would go to swear their oaths. It was also the river in the Achilles heel story, when Achilles was held by the heel and his mom dumped him in that river, and so he became immortal except for that heel that she had been holding above the water. That story applies to that river too. There's Phlegathon, the river of fire. Apparently, a goddess named Styx fell in love with Phlegathon, but she died because she touched him and he is fire, literally. This river in the epic poem Dante's Inferno boils your souls, and it is a river full of blood located in the seventh circle of hell. Any soul that tries to evade one level of the punishment from this blood river, because it's kind of tiered your punishment based on how bad you were in your life, what karma you get. Any soul that tries to kind of evade the worst case scenario, if they deserve it, they will get shot by a centaur. Really, like centaurs are patrolling that blood river, ready for people who try to evade comeuppance. The further they have to travel down the river, the greater the punishment. Acheron is the river that personifies misery, woe, 
In some interpretations of myths, it's used to refer to souls waiting to be reincarnated as animals. So Lethe, you drink from it, forget past lives. Styx holds the line between the living and the dead, also home to many famous myth stories like Achilles. Cocytus, the river of wailing. Dante's version depicts it as the deepest in the ninth circle of hell. And it's a frozen lake, thanks to Satan. It also has four rounds to it, where souls are sent depending on the crimes they committed in life. So at one level of the river are for people who betray relatives. If you betray your country, that's another level up. If you betray guests, that's the word choice, guests, that's another level. And then if you betray a master or benefactor. Guests is usually referred to their, like, government officials. Like if you betray citizenry. People who gave you a temporary stay in your position, like a political figure. The top level with traitors of your master or benefactor would be anyone who provided you perpetual material or emotional support, really. It's quite ambiguous. But anyway, don't try anything to get a lesser punishment there either. Acheron, Misery and Woe, and Phlegathon, the River of Fire. Lethe does most apply to the webtoon and in hyphen story. It relates to the next song, which is called Chacon. Chacon is a term for this kind of somber dance, like an eternal dance, which brought me down an internet rabbit hole about the dance of death and its history. Because one of the lyrics in the song is the dance of death, drunk with arrogance. Bach's song Chacon, made sometime between 1718 and 1720, is about 15 minutes long. It's viewed as a masterpiece, not because of so much the grief it's about, or it's thought to be about. The speculation is that he came home from a trip and found his first wife dead, and it's his song encapsulating the mourning after that happened. Because she was the wife to seven of his kids, and of course his first wife died, it's a tragedy, but a multi-level tragedy. What makes people say it's a masterpiece is not so much that terrible story behind it, but the fact that he simplified such a complex feeling. Despite being a lawn song, with some complex, subtle differences throughout changes in it, it's also quite repetitive, and just formulaically, it's detailed in a way that looks easy. So you listen to it, and it's not hard to understand. You feel that grief, but it was created in a way where if you took apart all the pieces that went into it, it would look like a big puzzle. So we found a way to really distill so much into such a streamlined, simplistic, on its face, song. A link to some reading I did on my site about actually the ways people in a different profession could analogize that relationship, like patient to doctor, where you are supposed to listen for very specific details and nuances about their stories in a way that is simplified and makes you feel their pain. The raw pain the song expresses, really quite applicable. Bach actually at that time, historians think, wouldn't really try to do that either, which makes people just admire him more because he wasn't even trying. To add all this meaning and try to be authentic and resonant, that wasn't really even what musicians cared about until after his time. So really, it just wasn't probably they suspect in his head to do something that would touch other people, but it did without trying. That's what's really cool about this story and anyone's story, any musician, right? On its face, it's whatever, but they can really strike a chord with you. The Dance of Death, it refers to visual depictions of the dead and the living dancing together in an equalizing of the dead and the living, or the dead is winning, basically, and pranking, goofing off with, yanking the chain of the humans. So people like aristocrats and stuff, they are taken down a peg, they're humbled by death. 
And the message is, you know, we're all gonna die. We're all equals in the afterlife. Death doesn't care how much money you got or how much your elite status is or not. It's the great equalizer. It comes for everyone. So some versions of this death dance in artwork and literature over time have really kept that playful humor to it, the dark humor. But others take that out and keep it quite morbid. Very different variations. But one of the more popular ones is a set of woodblock art by Hans Holbein called The Dance of Death. It shows death interfering in the lives of all kinds of people. Doesn't matter your social status or occupation or age or whatever. Everybody is messed with. And if anything, though, he treats differently the wealthier people. The people on the margins of society are treated more gently. He's more intense with the teasing he'll do, the mockery of aristocrats, which is quite a statement about this great equalizer. Because if you're at a higher privilege position, being taken down to equal status is a farther drop. It's a bigger shock. The more disruptive it feels when death takes your ego down. Death sometimes is depicted in this trend as riding a horse, as he guides the port of freedom, as he guides their souls to a reprieve, Noticeably, Jay rides a horse in an hyphen's Bite Me video. There's a really wonderful crystallizing quote from Bernard Chazelle, who wrote about box work in depth, and a link to it on my site. It is just so perfectly summative of why Chacon resonates and what I think an hyphen story is all about. Quote, as opposed to other composers, Bach targets the very young, the child, and people of a certain age, and tries to leave out the middle. There are all kinds of mental, psychological dispositions that he totally shunned. Envy, greed, lust, jealousy. I mean, this is the bread and butter of the opera. He never went there. He had no interest in that. His music tried to express things like awe, grace, thanks, fear, trepidation, hope, all kinds of sentiments a child can have, and an older person can have, but none of the sexual nonsense in the middle. You could tell from his music that his emotion is raw. It is so controlled, but it is so profound. This is a man who truly grieves. It's a dance, but it's a grieving dance. I know it seems like a paradox, but it's extremely moving, and yet it's very controlled, unquote. Perfectly aligns with an hyphen story. They are not doing a, ooh, this is just a cool sexy vampire concept where they're sitting bite me and it's just alluring and about this sensual thing and it's a related to a webtoon where they all lust after this woman. No, I don't read it that way at all. It is so much deeper than that. They are about those starting years of life, your childhood, in the years of older age, looking back on what your fate had in store. Their stories about the paradox of an eternal dance and that paradox of being moving and controlled being in touch with your feelings, changing directions, and still somehow following what fate has outlined for you. Trusting in a plan the universe has while still taking charge of your own life. Really perfect way to summarize the nuanced exploration of what it means to be human and to seek love and true power that an hyphen is all about. That's why I love this story. It's so rich. They're really telling just, it's not another vampire story, people. It's really so much more. They compare loneliness to a snowball in the Sawn Bills, which I thought was a really good way to put it, how it can escalate quickly. But they talk about the price of the relationship, and the bills are stacking up. 
again, this whole comeback is we're reaping what we sowed, realizing we couldn't take stuff for free. The riches we embraced before had hollow meanings. We're now seeing the hollowness of those feelings. It's also notable that the album cover to me looks like both a semicolon and like a diamond with like a feather or a smear of blood, some other curved line. I think it is meant to have that dual meaning and also kind of resemble a semicolon. Like this story is just pausing to assess where we've come, how we got here, and what to do. What's next? They're committing to a big destiny in this moment of contemplation. Basically, I think this Dark Blood chapter is all about getting high on your own supply and then being humbled and course correcting to remember what really matters in life and what you've been chasing that is actually superficial. That's how I'd put it, and I will put it in more ways. I'll elaborate on Substack, so stay tuned. Thank you all for tuning in, and I hope you enjoyed, and I will talk to you all again very soon. Bye, everybody!